Good morning. This is lesson 11, and Lord willing, it is the final lesson in our study of the letter of our Lord to the seven churches. I should tell you that I, I had a, an excellent illustration for, for my sermon for last week that was provided for me by my grandson, Calvin. It was on Monday night, and he was sitting at the table, and he decided that he was finished, and so he wanted to get down. His mother informed him that if he got down, there was no chocolate brownie. He milled around a while, and eventually he decided to come back to the table and have enough food to qualify for the brownie. And the, the food ended up being a hot dog, and so he stuffed that thing in until he was puffing out like a squirrel. Can you guess where I'm going with this? <laughs> and after he had worked this thing over for some time, he just opens his mouth and goes, Bleh. <laughs> and I think it was into my hand, as a matter of fact. If I had had a camera, that would have been on my PowerPoint for last week. Lucky are you for that. It, it, this, uh, this lesson and, and the book of Revelation... It reminds me of a final exam. Fortunately, I haven't had one for many years. But when I was in college and in seminary, a final exam was given to discern whether or not you knew the essential facts. But even more than that, that you were able to put those facts together in some meaningful way. And then you were able to relate them to life in some practical way. And when you think about the book of Revelation in that way, we know it's the last book, right? And in a sense, it is God's final exam for us. It's taken the data and the, the instruction that he's been giving us all through his word, all through time, and now it converges, as it were, in this one final book. And it's up to us to some degree, to put that together and to see how God's revelation fits together and comes to its climax at the end of uh, history. So we ought to check ourselves and see how we're doing on our final exam. The weekly messages have been just pop quizzes, I guess. Now here's what I think we learn about uh, Bible interpretation from these two chapters. Now I know I'm going to beat this drum for just a little bit and then I'm going to let it go. Extra biblical material is not on a par with scripture. Isn't that simple? Extra biblical material is not on a par with scripture. Uh, I would say one thing is it's not even certain it's true. You know, the one thing that we know that is true truth is this truth. Uh, sometimes people will quote Josephus, for example. Josephus has been known to exaggerate. And so, not that some of the rest of us haven't, but, but he could, he could embellish the reality of things, and therefore, you can't read Josephus like you read the Word of God. It's not necessarily absolute truth. And we have to be cautious about taking it in that way. It's not divinely inspired. Uh, it is, only the scriptures that have divine inspiration and authority. Extra biblical material is not essential to the interpretation and application of scripture. It is supplemental and illustrative. And all I'm saying is, let's keep it in its proper place. 
I don't have to have that data in order to understand the scriptures. We do need, of course, other scripture to do so. God's word is stand-alone sufficient. It doesn't lean on the crutch of extra information or data, although that may be interesting and it may be illustrative for us. I was thinking about Revelation chapter 22, just as Revelation is winding down. What does our Lord say? Don't add to it and don't take away from it. Isn't that what he says? And by the way, the consequences of that are pretty serious. Leave it alone. Is that not saying, as emphatically as it can be said, it doesn't need improving? It doesn't need additional information, and it certainly doesn't need removing in the sense of somehow taking away things that we think are unnecessary or unacceptable. Our Lord expects us to use the Scriptures in interpreting the text that we're in. Now, you'll notice in in, uh, Revelation 2 and 3, you have this reference to the tree of life in paradise. Does that not call upon us to draw up some data from long ago and far away? Of course it does. And that becomes essential to understanding what is being said here. The reference in the letter to Pergamum, uh, referring to Balaam in chapter 2, verse 14, expects the reader to understand not only that Balaam existed, but the story of Balaam, because these false prophets are being likened to him. Thyatira, there is Jezebel. And once again, the reader is expected, I would say, the Gentile reader is expected to know their Old Testament and to take those truths and bring them to bear. Let me just mention a couple things about how, this isn't in your notes, I added this, how the message uh, to one church may help us in understanding another church. It's, it's one thing to get outside biblical data and bring it to bear on our text, but sometimes there are texts within this series of, of uh, messages that will be helpful. For example, if you read of Smyrna's poverty and you see that indeed they are really rich, then that has all kinds of things to say about Laodicea's wealth <laughs> when they're really poor. So the one complements and contrasts with uh, the other. You have that uh, uh, instance in the letter to the church at Philadelphia where our Lord is described as the doorkeeper. What he opens, uh, no one closes. What he closes, no one opens. And yet when you come to the very next church, the last church, Laodicea, it's not our Lord as the doorkeeper, it's our Lord as the door knocker. And now... It's the Laodiceans who are to open that door. Now, that's not an accident. I think that's purposeful, and it causes us to look differently uh, and think differently about what is being said to the Laodiceans, and we'll talk about that in a minute. The synagogue of Satan is mentioned in our Lord's words to the church at Smyrna in chapter 2, verse 9. But it's not until he speaks to the church at Philadelphia in chapter 3, verse 9, that you see our Lord 
promising that those who belong to the synagogue of Satan are going to come and bow down to believers and acknowledge that Jesus loves that church. So the church at Smyrna is encouraged by the words to the church at Philadelphia. Scripture interprets Scripture. And I wish we had time to go through each and every one of these texts, but I simply mention Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 16, and you remember that I mentioned that uh, last week as well uh, when we were talking about our Lord as being the Amen. And in 65 uh, verse 16, it says, Bless, uh, Because he who is blessed in the earth shall be blessed by the God of... Amen, literally. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of Amen. What's interesting about Isaiah chapter 65 is, first of all, it comes at the end of Isaiah, and it's talking about God's promises for the future. But you'll notice that it's a, it really is talking about his promise to Gentiles because of Jewish unbelief, and it has a feel like Romans chapter 11. And so he says at the beginning of chapter 65, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am I, here am I, to a nation which did not call on my name. And then he goes on in chapter 65 to describe willful, rebellious, disobedient Israel and the judgment that's going to come upon them And so when he's speaking of this, he's speaking in the context of Jews and Gentiles who are going to be saved and drawn to the to the Lord Jesus. And it's very much, again, like Romans chapter 11. But I think that bears on the text in Revelation when it says he is the amen. Here's the context in which that amen is described, a context of his promise of blessing to Gentile and to Jewish uh, believers. Luke chapter 12. I like this one uh, for a lot of reasons. I love that chapter. But in Luke chapter 12, we're dealing with the question of the closed door. Now, in remember in the church at Philadelphia, our Lord says, when I open the door, no one closes it. So he's placed before the church at Philadelphia this open door. But now in Laodicea, he is standing before a closed door, knocking for them to open. Take a look with me at Luke chapter 12 and verse 35. Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Be blessed, or be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps alight and be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Is that what we're talking about in Revelation 3? I I have a sense that it is at least related to this. Now, here's here's the interesting thing. The Lord has already eaten, right? He came from the wedding feast. It's the servant's who have not eaten, and they are to be waiting, ready for the knock at the door by the master. And what's going to happen when the master comes and the servants open? He's going to, well, let's just read it. It says, 
Blessed are those slaves, verse 37, whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at table and will come up and wait on them. Is it possible that in Revelation chapter 3, our Lord is speaking of knocking at the door, of the believer opening the door, and rather than our Lord sitting down at their meal, he serves the meal. At least you have to say, here is a case where Scripture speaks of our Lord knocking and others opening. And it helps me understand, I think, Revelation uh, chapter 3. There are uh, several other texts. First Peter chapter 4 is especially interesting to me. And let's just take a quick look at that. What I'm trying to say to you is this. Other scriptures help me understand Revelation. And Revelation helps me understand other scriptures. So that in uh, 1 Peter, he has been speaking a great deal about suffering. And he says in verse 12, do not be surprised, of chapter 4, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing. Now get this, folks. Think about this in the light of what we've been reading in Revelation. For your testing. When our Lord says to the church, I'm going to, in, in, in chapter uh, 3, verse 10, I'm going to deliver you from the hour of testing. When, when those who dwell on the earth will be tested. Remember I showed that every instance of those who dwell on the earth are unbelievers. Now he says, suffering, your suffering in this life is for your testing now. Now let's read on. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of God, uh, of glory and of God rests on you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. This is the key verse. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of Christ? You know what this says to me? Suffering now is our testing. Suffering in this life is our testing. When our Lord says, I'll deliver you from the hour of testing, he's saying, I will not take you into that period of time when I test the unbelievers with those terrible things. And Peter is saying, think about it. Judgment in a sense. Purification is taking place in the church now. God's dealing with us now. But when he deals with unbelievers then, if he's severe with us in relationship to our sin, what's it going to be like for unbelievers in that hour of testing? Anyway, this text in 1 Peter chapter 4 all of a sudden gives me all kinds of insight into Revelation chapter 3. Um, and, and we could, let me just give you a couple of other texts. Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21, where it's talking about not having vengeance, 
but leaving room for wrath. Would you not agree with me that if you read that passage in Romans chapter 12 and then you read Revelation chapter 4 and following, you would say to yourself, you know what? I don't need to get even, do I? God's going to make it right. God's going to bring justice. I'll leave it to him. Hebrews 11 and 12, you see those people, people of faith, live their life in the light of what is yet ahead, enduring suffering in this life because they know what God has ahead for them. That, of course, is what Revelation is about as well. And in chapter 12, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. That's exactly what our Lord says to the church here. I love you, and when I love you, I discipline as well. Psalm 73. Psalm 73, here's Asaph. He's grousing because when he looks around, all of the wicked seem to be doing so well, and he and the other pious folks, but mainly him, they're not doing so well. Until he comes to the sanctuary of God, now he looks at his life in the light of eternity, and all of a sudden he says, you know what? I'm walking with you now. You're holding my hand now. And when you take me to heaven, I'm going to be with you forever. (laughs) These guys, they may have a little momentary pleasure, but they don't have you now, and they won't have you in the future. Psalm 73 is just a little vignette that gives us a picture of what Revelation describes to us in far greater detail. So all of a sudden, this text in Revelation helps me understand Psalm 73, and Psalm 73 gives me insight into Revelation. So it is Scripture, dealing with Scripture, that I see that is so important for us to grasp and to take advantage of. All right. Let's think of some applications, and I'm just going to go down through the churches and talk about what God might be saying to us as a church. And please do not take this as definitive, and it certainly is not the limit of what he may be saying, even if we were partially correct. Here is the church at Ephesus that is so concerned about doctrinal and moral purity But in all of their diligence, in all of their perseverance, this church has somehow lost sight of love. And I would say, you know, that does sound a little bit like us, doesn't it? Doctrinal purity. We want to have our doctrine straight. We want to have our morality straight. And it seems to me the Lord may be saying, all of that is good. You ought to do that. Don't lose sight of love. Don't become a junkyard dog. Uh... In, in terms of the way in which you deal with these matters. Smyrna, persecution. Uh, here is a church that is uh, impoverished. Here is a church that is uh, suffering greatly. And I have to say, when I look at this, he says, you're going to suffer. Some of you are going to be put into jail. Some of you are actually going to die. Persecution is something that may face us. It may very well face us, and it may face us sooner than later. We'd better be ready for it. Persecution is not an indication of divine disfavor. In fact, in Peter's words, it may be an indication of our identification with Christ who suffered. And then poverty. He says to them, you are poor. But really, you're rich. We need to be very, very careful about measuring spirituality by the offerings. Now, 
Don't get me wrong. It's a good thing for you to look at the bulletin and see what <laughs> what was given and what wasn't. It's a good thing for us to be faithful in our giving. But i got to tell you, those numbers are not the measure of spirituality. That was pharisaical thinking. The more pious you are, the more prosperous you are. It may well be that it is in times of poverty that God will do great things. And so those who were poor were indeed rich by our Lord's words. Pergamum speaks about toleration of immorality, and it's in the context of Balaam. I'm still wrestling with this, but but I, I think I need to mention it. When you think about Balaam, does money not come to your mind? I mean, isn't that really what it's all about? Balaam's been told by God, don't go. <laughs> and then Balak kind of ups the offer, you know, and finally Balaam says, well, you know, okay. I, I think it's a dangerous thing to be tolerant toward immorality when it's, there's a possibility that money is somehow involved. And, and, and I'm, I'm just going to say this. There are churches that are hesitant to discipline immorality because they don't want to rustle the, ruffle the feathers of those who give. I'll tell you what, it's not popular, folks. It is not popular. So it's saying, watch out for toleration of immorality. And it may have some tinge of materialism attached. Thyatira. Here's the church where the culture is obviously going in the opposite direction and Jezebel is among them. And I have to, I have to conclude that her gender is a factor in this and I have to take into account the fact that Jezebel led Ahab by the nose. Is that not really true? I mean, don't you see that? Je- Ahab's a wimp. And Jezebel's leading him around, acting in his authority. And, and it seems to me that here, when you look in our society and the feminine the feminism that's there, it seems to me that we ought to be reminded by this, the church is to be led by men. I'm not saying that if you have a woman, every church is going to go south. I'm simply saying this, to me, is underscoring the necessity of male leadership in the church. You can ponder that. You may disagree with me. Sardis. Here's the church that's nearly dead, almost dead. They have the reputation for being alive. I was thinking about this in terms of the PR pieces that churches do for the paper, or if they do paper, the stuff in the paper anymore, or their internet ad. But you know, you always want to make yourself look pretty good and, you know, pretty, pretty alive and vital and whatever. Be careful. Be careful. Our Lord's assessment of the church and its spiritual health is vastly different than ours. Even Christians can, I think, be misled as to what uh, an alive church looks like. Philadelphia. Here's the church with the open door, but the church who doesn't have a lot of strength. And yet our Lord seems to be saying clearly, this is the time to move. This is the time to move ahead through that open door. Sometimes God thins the troops down to 300, a la Gideon. 
because he doesn't want too many. And I would say to us, God may move more mightily in us in times of our weakness than in times of our strength. I was reminded this morning in the worship time when we were talking about the hand of the Lord. I was reminded of that text in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John, remember, on their way to the temple, guy was there looking for money in the name of our Lord. Silver and gold have we none, such as we have we give unto you. And all of a sudden, they're now in trouble with the Jewish leadership. They go back to the church, and uh, they uh, first thing they do is pray. They pray to the God who created the heavens and the earth, and they pray that they might be bold, and that God might manifest his hand, literally in the text, manifest his hand of greatness and power, to affirm the witness of that church. And it says the Spirit came down upon them and there was great boldness. And then you see how God advanced. I have to say, we need to pray that the hand of God would be upon us. Not because we're strong, but because He is. And He is the one who uh, opens the door. Laodicea. God loathes lethargic Christians. Hey, thanks, Gordon. You did something for me this morning. I looked at uh, Isaiah 59 and verse 17. And in the description of our Lord putting on armor, it says, He put on righteousness like a breastplate. And a couple of lines down, it says, He wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. I have to tell you, a God who is zealous does not like wimpy, zealless saints. And that's why our Lord says to the church at Laodicea, be zealous and repent. And I simply say to myself and to my friends, God wants us to be zealous about what he is about. Don't assume that material prosperity and ease is proof of piety just because the good life gospeliers tell us that over and over again. But rather, let us draw our sufficiency from our Lord Jesus as we seek to lay up treasure in heaven. Okay, let's look at lessons from chapters 2 and 3 as a whole, as I sort of put all this together. The Lord's words to the churches are words we all need to hear. Do you not agree? Let him who has an ear to hear, let him hear. These are words that we really need to hear. And that means for me, we probably need to hear it (laughs) more than once. We probably need to remind ourselves of these words over and over again. Uh, The elders are thinking about how we should contemplate these words as it relates to us, our leadership, and what the health of our church may be. Secondly, the Lord's words to one church are his words to every church. It took a while for me to get this one. Our Lord's words to one church are his words to every church. Is that not what he says? Let him hear what the Spirit says to the church as. Yes, each 
message has a particular focus, but everybody is to be listening to every message. And the reality is, this is a message composite that is addressed to all of us. Now, why do I start standing on that soapbox and beating on that drum? I'll tell you why. People come to the church at Corinth and Paul's instruction. You know what they say? Oh, that was a very unique situation there. So what Paul has to say to the church at Corinth about how they conduct themselves, it has nothing to do with us. Since when? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I'm sending Timothy to teach you not only what I preach, but what I practice in every church. And then he says in chapter 14, as in all the churches of God, this is what ought to happen. And, and on and on it goes. What our Lord says to one church here, he is saying to every church, don't ever let somebody circumstantially marginalize some message or some epistle. Everything he says to a church, he says to the churches, if I'm reading my text correctly. And I don't know how else to read it. The church is important to our Lord. Boy, if you can't get anything more than this, the church is important to God. How important is it for us to understand how the church ought to work? How important? It's as important as the church is to God. And I want to tell you, the church is vitally important to God. And here he tells us he loves his church. He is walking amongst the lampstand. He holds the angels in his hand, the messengers in those of those churches in his hand. He comes to them and speaks words of analysis and assessment. He speaks words of rebuke and words of encouragement. i got to tell you, the church is important to our Lord Jesus. And he loves his church. And therefore, it ought to be important to us. He is not distant. He is not removed. He knows exactly what is going on in the churches. And he knows better than they do. Or should I say, better than we do. He loves his church and he knows it and he's intimately involved in what it does. The second coming of our Lord is always spoken of as that which is near. Isn't that right? Behold, I come quickly. I don't know how else to read that. That says to me that not only are we to live in the light of the second coming, which is what is going to be played out in chapters 4 and following, but we need to live as though that time of his coming is near because my friend it must be it must be and that is the way that we ought to live it's our lord's appraisal of the church that matters not men's not men's not ours it is our lord's appraisal and the way in which we find his appraisal is through his word not by doing uh, surveys or polls or, or whatever else it is. Those may be helpful, but that doesn't tell us how God views our church. And I'd go one step further. Jesus himself is the standard. He's the standard for the church. The church is his body, folks. So it ought to look like him. He's concerned about the church. So Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 says... It's the word of God that tells us how things really are, how the cow ate the cabbage, so to speak, in the church. Overcomers 
are those who per, are persistently faithful to our Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what the circumstances, until death or until his return. What you see in, in, in the, these messages to the churches is that overcoming looks different in one sense. In, in the circumstances that you may find yourself, the overcomer in one church may face uh, persecution unto death. The overcomer in another may need to just wake up. But all of those who overcome are faithful in their walk with the Lord until the end. And that is surely what we should be too. Here's one for you. There is no perfect church. Surprise! Uh, that really caught you off guard, didn't it? There is no perfect church. You can represent yourself any way you want. You can market yourself any way you want. But my friend, there is no perfect church. Here's what the church looks like in Revelation 2 and 3. And it isn't pretty. Remember the, in Luke, our Lord says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? I don't think the church is going to be a beautiful sight. Uh, in, in many regards, there will be a remnant. But the church is not really pretty. And you know what? Individuals aren't. God uses weak, struggling individuals to achieve his purposes. And he uses a, a less than perfect church as well. We should be concerned about the things that concern our Lord. You know, we argue about a lot of things, don't we? Pre-post, mid-trib, mode of baptism. I could go down the list and offend almost all of you. But the reality is we quibble, we quibble over things that never are mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3. That ought to say something to us, shouldn't it? We divide over things that our Lord doesn't mention in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. We better get our priorities right. If we're going to be the kind of church that God wants us to be, we better think of things as important that he thinks are important and quit uh, campaigning for those which are less so. Not utterly unimportant, but less so. These letters are not really about us. They're about him. Every single letter starts with the description of our Lord. That's what really matters, is it not? Revelation chapter 1, if we don't get that point, Revelation chapter 1, what does it do? It gives us a picture of our glorified Lord. He is the one who is preeminent. He is the one in chapters 4 and 5 who's going to get worshipped. Yes, we need to get lined out, but what we learn about ourselves in these chapters is not flattering. What we see about Jesus is fuel for worship. And it's he that we ought to follow and he that we ought to emulate. I got one story to tell you, and then I'm done. My friend Donna Dare suffered with cancer, you know, tumor for 17 years. And we told all kinds of stories about Don at his funeral. But Jeanette and I were over at Judy's house having dinner, and she says, there was one story I forgot to tell you. So she told us then. 
It was when they were, we were in our old building uh, on Abrams Road, and it was in the Lord's Supper. And it was one of those very solemn moments, uh, and, and Dawn happened to be sitting on the far end of the pew, and the tray, I don't remember which of the two it was, but the tray comes to him, and, and he's sort of deep in thought, and, and he sees the tray, and he realizes he's the last guy. And so he takes the tray down to the front, and he uh, puts it on the table. And then he walks back, very deep in thought, very pious, and he uh, sees the first chair empty at his right hand, not looking carefully. He sits down and puts his arm around what he perceived to be his wife. And uh, it wasn't. His wife was one row back. (laughs) And so everybody sitting in that section sizes up the situation and they're saying to themselves it's going to get real interesting (laughs) poor gal sitting in these arms she's wondering what to do everybody's just kind of trying to figure out where to go with this thing and dawn is absolutely oblivious until he finally looks over next to him he yelps (laughs) jumps to his feet and goes back and sits by his wife And everybody back in that section just loses it. Well, the solemnity of the moment catches back on. But about ten minutes later, somebody snorts. (laughs) And the whole thing comes unraveled all over again. Why do I tell you that story? Besides, it's funny and I like to. When it's all over, friend, who are you going to be sitting next to? When it's all over... We're either going to be identified with our Lord Jesus Christ, seated next to him, or not. And the most deadly mistake anyone can make is to be sitting with the wrong person at the end of the game. And so I say to you, there's lots of instruction here for Christians, but don't miss the point. For unbelievers, there is a frightening eternity that lies ahead. And the time to decide who you're sitting with, so to speak, is now. I encourage you to acknowledge that you're a sinner, that you're desperately in need of his grace in the person of Jesus through his atoning death, to trust him who died for you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and the assurance that your name is written eternally in the Lamb's book of life. Then the promised rewards of revelation are yours. Father, we thank you for these two chapters. And we, uh, we ask that we might learn from them. We might listen to you speaking to us. Help us not just to walk away from these chapters, leaving these things behind, but to ponder them deeply to see where we as a church and we as individuals need to repent. For those, any, anyone who might be here apart from trusting in Jesus Christ for eternal salvation, may you draw them to yourself. You are the one that opens the door on the one hand, and yet men are called upon to believe in you. So we ask that you would do that work 
so that they might come to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.